The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1831, the year after Nat Turner's rebellion, a former slave from North Carolina sailed with the crew of the ship James Morey from Boston to the Dutch East Indies. That same year, a newly minted midshipman, also raised in North Carolina, sailed with the USS St. Louis through the West Indies. These two men were half a world apart at that moment, bound only by their common destiny as sailors and as Americans whose lives would be shaped by the conflict over slavery that would lead to civil war. Their stories are told in a nonfiction novel called Two Captains from Carolina, Moses Grandy, John Newland Maffitt, and The Coming of the Civil War. And we'll talk to the author, Bland Simpson, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from, as usual, the third floor of the Brewster Building on the glamorous and delightful campus of East Carolina University. But as always, not speaking for the university or the UNC system or the state legislature or anyone else, just me and our guest likewise will do the same for himself, no doubt, today. It has been an uh, interesting week here in Greenville, North Carolina. The weather has been its usual spring self with plenty of uh, sudden drenching rains and followed by steaming heat and uh, rampant wind. But it's also been a, uh, a, a typically crazy week here at the university. The dean of the College of Arts and Sciences announced his resignation earlier this week. This was a uh, one of those resignations that one suspects. Uh, well, you know when somebody says they're resigning to... Uh, seek other opportunities uh, with nothing else actually lined up. You know what that means, and it means the conflict over what kind of institution this will be and where arts and sciences will figure uh, is 
raging endlessly, and uh, you've all heard about it, so I'm not going to talk any more this week about that uh, distressing and, and, and depressing topic, but rather we'll talk about uh, happy things uh, in the world. Well, not happy either, because we're going to talk about the Civil War in just a few minutes. Uh, what could we say? In world sports news, the uh, Stanley Cup moves on, always a good thing. And in truly important world sports news, the J.H. Rose Rampants high school women's soccer team uh, held their postseason celebration this week. Uh, you've heard about their season because my daughter plays on the team throughout the year. And uh, one, in, in their in their last home game, one of their best players, a senior, had uh, suffered a serious knee injury the week before. And the coach, coaches of both teams arranged to have that girl start the game anyway, even with a giant brace on her leg, come out on the field, take her position. The other team kicked off and sent the ball out of bounds so the girl could be safely substituted off the field. But have the recognition from the fans and the honor of starting and that kind of sportsmanship between the two teams is what makes youth sports uh, a welcome relief from the bizarre world of academic politics. Uh, but another welcome relief from academic politics is actually studying history, and that's what we'll do uh, the rest of our time on this show, uh, both today and in upcoming uh, Friday afternoons. Next week, Jonathan Wells uh, from Temple University will talk about his book, A House Divided, The Civil War in 19th Century America. And uh, we'll talk about writing textbooks and teaching history to undergraduates. Uh, June 7th, uh, Megan Kate Nelson will be here with her book, Ruined Nation, Destruction in the American Civil War. It's a, a, a new angle that we have not seen before. No live show on the 14th of June. I will be uh, traipsing about the battlefields of Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania with Matterhorn Travel. From June 9 to 16, if you're interested and have thousands of dollars of spare cash, contact Matterhorn Travel somewhere. They must have a phone number or website and sign up. But uh, join the busload. We're going to go to some interesting sites, and I'll be sharing what I know about those battlefields with you uh, for those who are there. And on June 21st, what looks like our last show of the season, Jake Borat will be talking about the Gettysburg story, a movie he's making about uh, yes, Gettysburg, and hopefully his father, uh, Gabor Borat, the uh, legendary author of Abraham Lincoln and the Economics of the American Dream and the Gettysburg Gospel and uh, numerous other books and the longtime director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg. Uh, hopefully Gabor will also join us uh, with, with his son Jake and we'll talk about uh, all kinds of Civil War-related issues that day. If you're interested in contributing to the book fund, uh, you can find a link to that at the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney presents the upcoming shows. Uh, pretty soon we'll be listing the, uh, the fall shows. We've got uh, some people in mind already, uh, Lou Major, uh, hopefully uh, Eric Jacobson from Franklin, uh, and uh, various others are already being Put on the calendar, and if you have suggestions, uh, send them. Send an email. Go to the Facebook page for impedimentsofwar.org. That's a good place to communicate. Or look up my email here at 
East Carolina University and send me a message. Either way, anyway, uh, always happy to hear from you and bring on uh, guests that you've suggested. Well, our guest today is uh, uh, someone, well, let's bring him on and talk. That's the easiest way to do it. Uh, Bland Simpson, author of Two Captains from Carolina, Moses Grandy, John Newland Maffitt, and the Coming of the Civil War. Uh, Professor Simpson, are you there? I'm right here. Thanks for the invitation to be on your show, Jerry. Well, thank thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, you and I, I, I think, probably shook hands this February. You came and gave a, a very good talk at East Carolina uh, about uh, the the, um, the voyages to Carolina. The the uh, I'm, I'm blanking out as I, as I sit here about Thomas Harriet. No, the uh, Thomas Harriet uh, theme and, and uh, lecture. Yes, that was February a, a year ago. Thank you very much. Was that really? Was that a year ago? Not just this past year. The time has no. flown. <laughs> sure has. It, it may have. Well, anyway, um, well, your your title is the uh, Keenan Distinguished Professor of English and Creative Writing at uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and yet, if you are like me uh, and many of listeners are, uh, your uh, your your claim to fame is your longtime uh, membership in the Red Clay Ramblers, uh, the, the maybe the premier old time and uh, traditional music group of the late twentieth, early twenty first century. Uh, so I want to lay that that out for our listeners and point out that well, I, I'm very very I, proud of the Ramblers and uh, have worked with the band for almost all of its uh, forty years. And I've toured as a regular member for the last twenty-five. I, I remember in, in back in college in the seventies buying an album with a blue cover. Was it Al McCandless with the Red Clay Ramblers? Yes, that was the first record that the Ramblers cut. Uh, it was recorded over at the Duke uh, on the Duke campus, and uh, Al, fiddling Al McCandless joined the joined the recording uh, for that. For that occasion, he's he's always been a friend of uh, all of us who've who've been in and around the Ramblers all these years. Uh, it, it it was uh, an early inspiration, and from there I I bought uh, probably all your albums and back in their vinyl days, uh, and still have them. I can't bring myself to throw the vinyl collection out or, or re-record it. Uh, so I, I've I've gotten a lot of uh, pleasure and learned a lot of tunes. Uh, uh, in in, in a, from from the things you've played, so it, it's, I have it's, too. It, our our fiddle player <laughs> probably knows uh, twenty five hundred tunes. Uh, he knows the, <laughs> the uh, United Kingdom versions of the songs, and he knows what they're uh, what they morphed into over here, and uh, in terms of both uh, tune changes and titles and, and so forth. So uh, I learn a lot playing rhythm piano in the band. Well, it's it's interesting how much connection there is between music and history, and there are several you know, musical interludes sort of running through this book uh, that you've written. But I, I want to start by pointing out to our listeners that most of the books we talk about on this show, not all by any means, but probably a, a bare majority, are academic monographs, uh, pick a single narrow topic and look at it in depth. Uh, and we don't do historical fiction as a rule. But here you've written something that you call a nonfiction novel. 
and it sort of falls between these camps. What what is a nonfiction novel? Well, the phrase uh, was initiated by Truman Capote when he wrote In Cold Blood, which is uh, subtitled a, a True Account of a Mass Murder and Its Consequences. But in the uh, author's final word in the book, is just a afterward, he says uh, he hopes that the publication of In Cold Blood will encourage the study of and the creation of more uh, nonfiction novels. And what he did in that in that great book was uh, through interview and observation and surmise uh, create a not only a narrative. Of, of what happened in the in the uh, case of the killing of the Cutter family, he created a, a psychological, as best he could, psychological portrait of what motivated the killers. And uh, in in his text, uh, using the uh, license of a novelist, even though he was writing about a true story, uh, Capote uh, created a novel. Um, so that's that's where that term comes from, and it's uh, I like it. Uh, I like telling uh, a real story in the form of a novel and having the, the license to uh, move time and uh, dramatize events, and uh, yet the the main certainly the main spine of things and uh, everything important that uh, happens in this book of mine and in the two other nonfiction novels I've, I've published. Everything of, of any consequence that occurs uh, actually occurred. And I've included a, um, a, a lengthy chronology uh, in, the, in the back of the book uh, of the events of these men, these two men's lives. So that's about as close as I come at it, Jerry. That's a good. Uh, it's a an interesting genre. In the Civil War, I'm sure listeners are thinking of uh, the Killer Angels of uh, Michael Shara's great book on Gettysburg. That is uh, a novel in the sense that there are some fictional characters introduced, but there are also plenty of historical characters. Uh, the events that happen are accurately those that did happen, uh, but he's able to get inside the the actors' heads in a way that. Uh, that a traditional historian can't do. You can't if you can't document that General X thought something, then you can't say it in your book. But a nonfiction novelist can do that, and uh, it, it gives us a uh, a new new sort of insight. Is there a risk? Do you think with nonfiction novelization uh, of an author? I don't say misleading the readers, but if the line isn't visible between speculation and and documented incident, uh, how, how do you keep yourself on track from from going off into just saying what you want? Well, I'm um, I think I'm committed as an artist to uh, abiding by the you know I said use the word spine, but the, the nonfiction line of, of these men's lives, and I, I certainly was telling their, trying to tell their lives and have these two lives reflect off each other uh, from the standpoint of a dramatist, not a not an historian. 
um, I, I think it's the uh, artist's responsibility. I, I think, uh, you know, we can look at how Shakespeare dealt with history. You know, all those uh, beautiful lines and speculations that occur in Julius Caesar clearly uh, are his inventions. But uh, had he not committed himself to the uh, dramatizing the Julius Caesar story, we would be much poorer, and, and many of the other histories, too. So uh, I think um, Shakespeare's sense, uh, you know, one of our premier, or probably our premier dramatist in the language, um, he's a pretty sterling model for, for how to, to put historical figures on stage and saying things that, um, in, in most cases, we, we don't know what they that, that they would have really said those things or uh, thought the thoughts they're vocalizing. But uh, you know, he's telling the story of Julius Caesar as best he he could divine it. So I, I don't have a great uh, a great fear of going off the track. Uh, it's it's a very impressive. Uh, uh, it, it it as a tool for for gaining that kind of insight. It really is a, an impressive way to go about it. And and Shakespeare is certainly a a high mark uh, uh, to aim at. I'm, I'm just thinking out loud about other writers who've done this. And, and again, uh, I think Michael Charo's book is is extremely successful at it. Uh, I've not read Stephen Oates's book. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, he wrote some traditional histories, biographies of Lincoln and John Brown, but he wrote a book late in his career about uh, uh, the coming of the Civil War and Brown and others are characters. And he has them making all kinds, has all kinds of conversations that are, are not documented where he says, this is what they would have said or should have said. And he puts them in and that, as I said, I haven't read the book, but it didn't get a good press in the uh, historical world. Not not because he's doing what you're doing or what what Michael Shara did, um, but because he apparently didn't do it convincingly. And, and I think that may be the trick there: the 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 level of artistry and insight into your characters that you can bring. Uh, if you can get the audience to suspend the disbelief and say this 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 rings true. This is what people. This is what uh, Henry V or Julius Caesar or Moses Grandy would have thought. Then, uh, th- then you're okay. But if if you fall off that stage and people start going, "Oh, how does he know that?" Uh, I mean, it's a high wire to walk on. It's not one I'd want to try. But I, I admire your your ability to well, do that. Well, it was a thank you. It's a narrative challenge, and in my case, I mean, it was substantially easier. Um, because uh, in, the, in Moses Grandy, I had a man, uh, though he was illiterate, he was highly intelligent, and he gave a, a very impressive narrative of his life and experiences when he went to London in the fall of 1842. And in John Newland uh, here's he's a writer, and he, he wrote a thinly-veiled uh, fiction that was essentially a... Uh, his own nonfiction novel about his experiences as a as a young sailor when he was training on the on the Constitution, and his 
he left uh, a lot of comments. We have his papers at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, they're only less than 100 yards from my office, so I had a, <laughs> uh, a, a short walk uh, to that uh, treasure trove. And um, Maffitt's wife, the third wife, uh, Emma Martin Maffitt, uh, made a um, something of a, a biography that uh, was largely based on his his records and letters that people wrote her about experiences with him. So I had, there was a good deal of documentation in uh, in both cases, uh, much less so with, with Grandy, but still uh, I had, you know, scenes uh, that I could see that I wanted to dramatize that he, he gave in very skeletal form, just this happened and I went here and, and this thing happened, uh, sometimes with a little bit of dialogue you know, that he gave, but... Um, so anyway, I had I had some significant advantages in the in the documentary record that, that those two men left. Well, we're going to take a short break now and and come back and let's, we'll talk about Moses Grandy uh, when we return. Uh, one of the main characters in the book, Two Captains from Carolina. Our guest today is Bland Simpson. He's the author. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market step up to the microphone view the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv america's next great star is waiting to be discovered Step Up to the Microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Bland Simpson. He's the Keenan Distinguished Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Also a uh, well-known musician in the American traditional and folk and uh, old-time music scene, and also, uh, for our purposes today, the author of Two Captains from Carolina, Moses Grandy, John Newland Maffitt, and the Coming of the Civil War. Uh, neither Moses Grandy nor John Newland Maffitt is a household word, uh, household name. Uh, Grandy in particular, uh, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, is, is a former slave or was born into slavery in North Carolina. Uh, uh, how do you how do you begin tracking the historical record of someone like this? And and, and 
tell us something about his, his, his early years. Who, who is Moses Grandy? Grandy was, was born in Camden about 1790-91, Camden, North Carolina. That's uh, a small crossroads. Uh, county seat is named Camden, and the county is, is as well. It's on the uh, east side of the Pasquotank River, which is one of a number of rivers that flow out of the Great Dismal Swamp. The Great Dismal Swamp is a, now uh, a little over 100,000 acres of uh, forested wilderness that uh, a great wet morass that straddles the Virginia-North Carolina line between Norfolk and Hampton Roads on the north and um, Camden, Elizabeth City, uh, and some other small towns on the North Carolina side to the south. And uh, Moses was the uh, property of the Moses Grandy of the Grandy family, pretty large landowners in uh, Camden County. And he was hired out as a, once he got to be, he never says uh, quite what age, but when he was a boy, so probably when he was about 10, he had a number of, of jobs, some of them were field work, but at a pretty early age, uh, when he was a teenager, he was he was put aboard the um, ferry boat uh, that crossed the Pasquotank River, and it's not a tiny, it's not a narrow river where the ferry was. It's, uh, oh, probably 100, 100 yards or so, 150 yards at, at places. Um, so here's a ferry that he had to pole and, uh, and use a cable and so forth. So he grew up, uh, he, he was on the water at a pretty early age, and his, uh, he was a big fellow, and he was a hard worker. He came early, stayed late, and wasn't afraid of, of hard work. And his, uh, his work and his ethic was noticed really to get the attention of a merchant in Elizabeth City, which is a little river port right there on the, on the Pasqua Tank where it makes a big curve and goes from being a, a narrow river to a, a long bay-like river about 18 miles more down south to the Albemarle Sound. And the merchant's name was Charles Grice, and what he did was make a deal with with Moses Grandy's master and, and to, to let Moses to get him off the, the ferry boat and other tasks and put him to work uh, in charge of freight boats running from Elizabeth City up the rest of the Pasquotank River to the Dismal Swamp Canal, 22 miles in length, that connected the upper Pasquotank with Deep Creek, Virginia, a tributary of the uh, south branch of the Elizabeth River on into Norfolk and, and Hampton Road. So uh, essentially the Dismal Swamp Canal connects Chesapeake Bay and Albemarle Sound and the, that whole the territory. So uh, Grandy was put to work running a canal boat, and he was uh, totally trustworthy, never lost a as he said, a stick of freight. And uh, he at, some time, at times had trains of, of craft, probably uh, probably no more than four or five, but he was in charge of a lot of goods and uh, a number of men, and he was referred to as Captain Grandy. He was a captain in, uh, in, uh, oh, in general parlance. We might, we might more properly call him a pilot, but uh, he had the uh, he was in command, so he had a lot of authority and a lot of freedom of movement for a 
uh, young man who was in bondage, and the merchant who was hiring him from his master said, "You're uh, you're able to save a little money on the side here, Moses. Why don't you buy your freedom?" And so that was that set the uh, the life story and the in terms of a storyteller uh, that, that sets the plot of Moses Grandy's life and the telling of his story from my perspective in motion. He wants his freedom and he makes a deal to buy it and he's cheated and then he makes another deal to try again he's cheated a second time and on the third try he succeeds so that's that's and then, and then he goes on to uh further uh, activities and adventures of, of i think considerable notes so quite a quite a story quite a compelling story and it, it, uh, it is that it is a compelling story the the that he buys his freedom or is given the opportunity to do so uh i believe the price is six hundred dollars which i don't know what that would be in 1830 by 1860 that's double the per capita income uh so in modern dollars we're up to 50 or sixty thousand at least um so i don't know what that would be in in, in his era but it's it's a lot of money oh a huge huge amount of money and it took him i think you can uh, the easiest way to assess its value in, in terms that mean something to us is it is in time. It took him two to three years to put that much money together. And so when he's cheated, uh, he's cheated not only of the cash, he's cheated of that much of his life. So the fact that it took him three different times to gain his freedom at a uh, between two and three years, a time, uh, most of ten years. And it's, uh, yeah. it's really a, an amazing story that he had the strength of character to, to keep that effort going. And he was clearly, he was, he was determined not to run off, be a runaway. He could have, he could have stepped off one of those canal boats at any time and walked into the dismal swamp and been, and joined the, um, the runaways who were living in there. There were hundreds of them, you know, between, 1800 and, and the Civil War, but he didn't do that. He kept trying to make the system, the same system that was cheating him, uh, he tried to make it work and, and finally did. Uh, one of the things I liked about this book, about the sections describing Grandy, are the, the descriptions of the landscape of eastern North Carolina. This is uh, a little to the north and east of where I'm sitting here in, in, in Greenville. Uh, we're on the edge of the coastal plain. But as you go further east toward the Atlantic, uh, the overwhelming characteristic is flatness. So you have these enormous lakes and swamps uh, that are not deep, but they're awfully broad, and uh, uh, there's just water everywhere. It's a very, very wet landscape, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I lived in Elizabeth City um, my ah. first ten years. So, um, I, and I've gone back to it for to tell various stories in in, uh, in several books so it's um it's a it's a place in a landscape the um territory that are are very near and dear to me so the, to to be able to dramatize uh, grandy's story uh you know it was was also uh you know freighted with the the opportunity to um to dramatize the the landscape that that I knew well, and that, that I knew he had he had grown up in, 
and that he dealt with as a uh, you know as a man, a man of commerce uh, moving those those watercraft. And I, I should say that in, in growing up there, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, neither of these two sailors or captains are household names. They certainly aren't. When I grew up in Elizabeth City between the 1948 and 59, before I moved to Chapel Hill, uh, I never once heard the name of Moses Grandy. I didn't become aware of him until the hmm. uh, 1990s. And he's... Uh, <laughs> It's a pretty significant maritime figure in North Carolina history, and then the, he goes on to play a, a role in the with the abolitionists. So uh, he's he's a serious historical uh, character, and so part of the motivation of this book is to find, uh, you know make his name more uh, well known. He does follow in the, the footsteps of other abolitionists, former slaves who become abolitionists like uh, Frederick Douglass and in terms of going north uh, with his freedom and then uh, you know, joining abolitionist groups and speaking and, and being held up uh, as an example of the, the both humanity and the, uh, the high moral qualities, uh, high qualities of character that uh, some Africans were able to maintain under slavery as a way of disproving the charges of the slaveholders that somehow all slaves were childlike and needed to be ministered to, that uh, indeed there were people like Grandy who were quite capable of uh, running uh, their own lives and running a ship as well. Absolutely. Now, when th- this will be a spoiler alert, so listeners, if you're going to read this book this week and go out and order what immediately uh, you want to cover your ears briefly but uh, the ending of the Grandy story is that he just disappears from the record uh, have you ever I hate the question the interviewers ask how did that make you feel because uh, we're more interested in history than how we feel about things uh, here at least but how did you feel? Uh, did you ever hope there'd be another scrap somewhere you might find out what became of him? Oh, sure, Jerry. I mean, uh, I kept thinking, you know, as steadily, uh, increasingly sophisticated as the as the search engines uh, have gotten and are always getting. I kept thinking, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna search in some area. I'm gonna there's going to be a lucky day, and I'm going to find the the next thing. But um, and somebody probably will at, mm-hmm. uh, at some future date. Someone will, may well come up with uh, information about what graveyard he's buried in. I, I kept thinking I'm going to go to all these graveyard records, and there are, there are lots and lots of them, and they're quite searchable. I thought I'm going to find him, and I was just sure I was going to find him buried in Boston. But, uh, the, but it could also be that, Portland, Maine, or it could be London? Well, yeah. Well, I, I was betting on Boston because he had spent so much time there, but he had moved from Boston to Portland right before he went to London in the early 1840s. Um, I kept thinking Boston because he did. The last known uh, date that places him anywhere is the, the afterword that he added to the American edition of his narrative, first published in London in in the the late fall of 1842 and then published in 
United States in 1844, uh, and he gave some additional information. It's just a page, but he gives it in first person. He obviously talked it because he couldn't write, um, and he he gives it. It's dated uh, the publisher's office, uh, a date, I think it's January 19th, uh, a date in January 1884 in Boston, uh, the publisher's office down on Cornhill Street, right downtown, and that is the last uh, matter of record that shows where he was, so I don't know if he lived another month or year or another 20 years, and so that's that's why I, I ended his uh, the entry, the last entry for him with a series of um, rhetorical questions and uh, and a, a well, I think a bold comment about uh, intended to be his epitaph uh, about what what sort of man he was. Because and and you mentioned Frederick Douglass a moment ago, uh, Grandy's tour of England, his book tour, uh, occurred between late 1842 and June of 1843, which time he was presented to the, the World Anti-Slavery Convention, and this predates by a, a couple of years or so uh, Frederick Douglass's trip to England. So, you know, these the abolitionists were they were going they were going to school on all this. Uh, uh, who went and and how well did did he do, um, you know, on tour and so I think it's significant and not uh, unrelated that um, that Grandy precedes Douglas. Well, he was certainly a, an important figure uh, and one who's not as well known today as, as he ought to be. And this book may help change that. Uh, your other main character, John Newland Moffat, uh, does or, or Moffat uh, does become more well known eventually. We're going to take another short break, come back and talk about him. Uh, We're talking today with Bland Simpson, author of Two Captains from Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Bland Simpson, author of Two Captains from Carolina, Moses Grandy, John Newland Moffat, and The Coming of the Civil War. We've been talking about Moses Grandy, the ex-slave who becomes an abolitionist, as well as a sea captain. Uh, but uh, we also want to talk about the other main character, uh, John Newland Moffat. Moffat? Moffat? I'm not sure how... He would pronounce that, uh, but he. Like both ways. <laughs> uh, you've heard it both ways. I think so. Yeah, but I, I say Maffet. We'll go with Maffet then. He was uh, uh, a Navy officer and spends much of his time uh, before the war mapping out the coast. His, and uh, if, if in one way a third character in this book, it seems to me, is the the coastline, uh, the the coast on which. Grandy grew up in which uh, Maffet spends his life charting, uh, just features in, in every chapter in one way or another, and uh, is described in, in uh, uh, inspiring detail. The, uh, the Just to, well, well, let me ask this, how did you come across uh, uh, Maffet's story? It, it's uh, as as you note, he has a career as a blockade runner, and we'll we'll talk about that momentarily. But he's he's not the most famous person in the Confederacy. Uh, uh, where did you where did you come up with him, Jerry? I think I first heard of Maffet. No, I'm sure I first heard of him in uh, in one of James Sprunt's uh, books about the uh, lower history of the Lower Cape Fear River, which runs. Uh, out of central North Carolina down into southeastern North Carolina, past Wilmington, and onto the sea. Uh, James Sprunt was a uh, was a an officer on uh, at least one of Maffet's ships during the Civil War, and was a, a merchant uh, after the war and, and knew him uh, quite well. And I, I think I first heard of Maffet. This uh, somebody gave me a copy of this book back in the nineteen seventies. Uh, I did a TV. I was doing a, t- a bunch of TV shorts for the the state, the, the North Carolina Public Tele- Television Network about the Civil War. Uh, these were six minute shorts that were intended to go along. That ran along with Ken Burns's pieces back in uh, uh, 1990. And one of the shorts that we did uh, focused on Wilmington and the river. And um, we had a, a mention or two of, of Maffet in that. But um, I didn't know a, a great deal about him until I, I uh, started on this book. I, I was talking with uh, Sonny Williamson, the late Sonny Williamson from Carteret County. Uh, it's about Marshallburg way, uh, east of Beaufort. We were talking about uh, a man who, from that county who became a blockade runner named Matthew Gooding. And, uh, you know, I'm, I am a musician and, and composer, and I think hearing the name Gooding, um, Gooding uh, ran a craft that ran the uh, Nashville out of, against the blockade out of uh, Beaufort for the Confederacy, and he died uh, during the Civil War. But hearing the name Gooding, uh, I think, and I've been wanting to do something with Moses Grandy's story. I'd written a song about him. Hearing Gooding, I thought, yeah, I think it was the hard G sound. Mm-hmm. I thought, Gooding and Grandy, Grandy and Gooding. Uh, we were just in conversation out, uh, sitting on a porch, looking across the water uh, one afternoon in the summer. And I thought, I wonder if I could 
reflect somehow these men. And I, I couldn't find enough information about Gooding. Uh, Sonny Williamson had written a short book about him, and I, I couldn't find anything to add to it. And But, but thinking about that led me to think about uh, Maffet. And I knew there was, uh, uh, you know, bound to be more material on Maffet, and I had no idea um, that we had his papers right there in the in Wilson Library, just a few, like I said, a few yards from my, my office. So um, I got the idea from from thinking of Moses Grandy, Matthew Gooding, but went to went to Maffet. I, I wanted men from Carolina, from North Carolina, and I wanted you know their maritime lives to be. Uh, like I said, reflecting off each other, and uh, Maffet filled the bill. And I really loved learning about him because he was such a um, before he became a warrior in the Civil War, he really was a man of uh, of knowledge and science. As he and the others in the Coast Survey tried to chart the waters uh, between New England and and all the way on down to to Florida. Uh, he spent a great deal of time on the southern coast after about 1849. And uh, I, I think, and uh, somebody may <laughs> may uh, say otherwise, but I think he he knew the southern coast at the time the Civil War started. I think he knew the southern coast uh, certainly as well as any other man alive and very possibly better. So it was a great loss to the Union when he left Washington, D.C. and headed south. Well, that was the most surprising moment in the book for me uh, because you you describe his career as uh, uh, working with the Coastal Survey and charting uh, the coast in great detail and serving on Navy ships. And then at the beginning, uh, uh, during the secession winter, when uh, there's a threat in Alabama to... uh, uh, take over a ship that he commands at that point, he makes it clear he will blow out of the water any Alabama statecraft that attempt to interfere with the United States property. And he delivers the ship back to New York and reports for duty in Washington. And I, I hadn't really you know, thought clearly, hadn't looked much at the end of the book. And at this point I was assuming, well, okay, he'll be a... Uh, uh, you know, he'll continue to be a Union Navy officer. He, you describe how, as a Union or as a United States naval officer, he had helped capture slave ships before the war. He was, uh, uh, he himself uh, eventually freed uh, slaves of his his wife. And then it was quite a sudden surprise that uh, the U.S. Navy has no use for him, and he feels compelled to go south. Yeah, that's a big. The getting at the psychology of that uh, moment in time for him was that was a really interesting uh, matter or collection of matters, and I, I gave a great deal of, of thought to it. Uh, he he certainly had uh, southern uh, ties and, and uh, sensibilities, loyalties, because uh, his his children were. He had already sent by the time April uh, was concluding, April 1861, he had sent his children back down south to uh, the family farm outside of Fayetteville, North Carolina. He had his first wife had been from Mobile. His uh, second wife 
had been uh, from Charleston. But um, nonetheless, he had been a, a U.S. Navy man for 29 years. And he, when he went, he delivered the Crusader, the, the man of war that, that he had uh, protected in Alabama waters in January of 61, he had delivered it back to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. His orders were, go back to your home in Washington, D.C., and await further orders, and there weren't any. And you know, during that spring, there were a great deal of defections uh, going on in, in, in all services, I'm, I'm sure, certainly in the Navy. Uh, but he didn't, he, he wasn't uh, early to that at all. And the, the Union, the Lincoln government, did not court him uh, in the way that an officer, a major officer like David Porter, was courted. And Porter, of course, oversaw the successful end of, of, of Fort Fisher um, in January of 1865. Uh, I think if the government, if the federal government had courted John Mathis, um, he may well have stayed with the service. Uh, he, he, some a friend of his tipped him uh, right at the end of April that he was on a a secret list uh, within the Lincoln government to be arrested because he was suspected of having Southern uh, ties. He certainly did have Southern ties, but uh, I don't know of any Confederate ties uh, that he had, you know, and they clearly weren't. Uh, the same, the exact same thing. But once he learned that the Lincoln government was going to arrest him, and he had had no further, you know, communication after he had reappeared, you know, came back to Washington to wait for the orders in February. That's two months almost. Over two, well, it is over two months. He uh, he just gave up, and he'd had a had some troubles with the bureaucracy in uh, the mid 1850s that he had overcome. So I think he just gave up. But he almost gave up on Jeff Davis after a very brief uh, interview with him in, in early May of 1861. So um, it's a really interesting uh, couple of weeks there for him after uh, two months of waiting to hear from from the U.S. Navy and not hearing anything. Well, he, he finally does consent uh, to, to fight with the Southern Navy, and you point out that there there is no Confederate Navy, and it really has to be improvised. Uh, but he makes his name captaining blockade runners and uh, uh, and raiders, and, and the most famous one by far uh, is the CSS Florida. Uh, most uh, all of our listeners have heard of the Alabama, uh, uh, the, the most famous of the blockade runners, or not blockade runners, but but commerce raiders. And uh, but Florida was 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 possibly at the time equally as well known as the Alabama, uh, and and it did a lot of damage. Maffitt, uh, like Sims, of course, with the Alabama, uh, but the Alabama and the Florida together did did phenomenal damage, and it was, of course, the Confederacy's dream that the commerce raiders would put such a hurt on Union commerce that the Yankee merchants would. Uh, pound on Abe Lincoln to sue for peace with the South, and that would be it. The South, you know, had always had a great dream going that uh, some, that some, 
something like this is going to work, or that uh, European power is going to come in on the side of the South, that sort of thing. So, but it was it was great hope, and uh, and they did between them, the Alabama and the, and the Florida, ruined uh, a lot of Union bound, Northern bound commerce. Uh, I think it was it's almost two dozen vessels that uh, that Mattis scuttled in uh, less, much less than a year. He's uh, he's out in very early 1863, and he he has to put in in, in France in Brest in uh, uh, early September of 1863. So he's only out for about eight months and does damage all over the Caribbean and uh, all the way on up to uh, not too far from New York and over in uh, near England. He was he was just fearless. He was not afraid of anything, and he was an excellent sailor and uh, mariner. So he was he was ideal for for the task. And after the war, uh, when he came when he finally came back uh, in 1867, his former comrades from before the war, who had been his enemies during the war, were glad to see him. They wanted to hear the story from his side. You know, they they liked him. They always admired him. They respected him. Thought he was a a gentleman, even though he had become an, an enemy. And uh, he was quite pleased at the, and I think surprised at the welcome he got at the Brooklyn Navy Yard uh, upon his return. And Back one of the interesting things that, that comes out is the difference in, in commerce rating warfare uh, in the Civil War. You describe how he captures and either uh, either burns the, the prizes or or bonds them, but in either case, uh, if he burns them, he takes the crew off in boats and uh, arranges for their survival, takes them on his ship or puts them in ships' boats where they can get back to land. And uh, It's not like uh, the 20th century where submarines sink on sight and the, the crew is left to perish. Uh, it, it, it's much more gentlemanly. Uh, he had quite a reputation for that. And, um, in fact, he, he only fired... I believe one marshal shot. Uh, he was he was approached by a Union ship when he was up not too far from New York, and uh, sometime in the summer of, of 1863, and he gave chase to that craft and fired one or maybe more than one, but uh, the, the other craft, the Union craft, disappeared in the uh, fog and mist. So no, there was no uh, battle ensued, but. Uh, other than that, he was shot at. <laughs> yeah, but, a lot. But yeah, but he was—he uh, was not a shooter. It had very, very different uh, rules and protocols of, of engagement and, and behavior. Now, after the and, war, oh, oh, go ahead. I just say it's fascinating too that uh, you know here's a man who spent two decades charting all these uh, approaches to harbors and. And everything, everything in the service of commerce, the advancement of commerce, and the safety of, of mariners. Uh, and then during the war, of course, he's he's doing everything he can uh, to disrupt commerce of the of the other side of the federal government. Um, and you know that had to that had a heavy irony to it. He was uh, he was very well aware of of that. And, and also the irony, as you mentioned, no one knew the southern coastline better than he did. Uh, there, there's a Maffet Channel in, in Charleston named for him. Right. Uh, 
and then he uses that knowledge to sneak past the blockaders and find his way into uh, harbors uh, throughout the war. Well, we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, I'll throw one last comment in, which is that after the war, you note that he uh, he marries again, having lost his second wife, uh, to the sister of the woman who marries his adult son. And for a minute, the lyrics to I'm My Own Grandpa flashed into my head as I tried to figure out the relationships there, uh, where he's married to... Uh, uh, he and his son are married to the same family, but it didn't quite work out like that. But he no, does end but up. But his uh, wife becomes her her sister's mother-in-law. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, it. It gets complicated, but that is one tiny detail in a a really interesting book and one that uh, that I enjoyed reading uh, thoroughly. It's, well, thank you very it, much. It, it's not long. It's it's. Beautifully written. It, it's well illustrated uh, uh, with nice uh, maps and so on. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, and, uh, Bland, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. Really appreciate it. And, listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. <music> Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.